Hey guys, welcome to Product Explained, a show where we talk about products and the company's history and strategy behind them. I'm your first host, Jeff Lee. And I'm your co-host, Mike Alcazarin. Hey Jeff, is the difference between calling yourself a tech company or not just giving away free beer and, you know, some cool branding? Uh, I think only if there's a summer camp. Today's show, we're talking about WeWork, a company that provides physical and virtual co-working spaces. Yeah, so as Jeff said, WeWork is a, is a company that has, uh, you know, really made co-working that term just a widely acceptable and recognizable term. WeWork has over 800 office buildings across almost 120 cities across the globe. WeWork caters to both freelancers, so if you're just one person looking for a desk, all the way up to, you know, satellite teams from larger companies that might need a new office space in a new location. WeWork is also famous for their community space perks as well. So you can get your free coffee, your beer, snacks, along with your high-speed Wi-Fi, phone booths, all the perks that you'd expect in a big high-tech company office, um, like printers and office supplies and all of that jazz. The spaces are well-designed. WeWork definitely puts a lot of money and time and effort into making sure that the spaces are cohesive and they're also branded specific to each city. So I know if you go into the Boston WeWork, you'll see some Boston Bruins uh, swag all over the office or different you know, shout-outs to the local sports teams. And I imagine it's the same across uh, different WeWorks across. I know I've been to a couple of New York WeWorks as well, um, and they're all very, very much well-designed. They're also in iconic locations. So WeWork actually purchased the Lord and Taylor building, which is a uh, very iconic building in Manhattan on Fifth Avenue. So that's what WeWork is, is they essentially offer desks and office space for those that are looking for it. So in terms of WeWork's business model, I think the best analogy I can think of is it's kind of like a gym membership, but for co-working. So you pay a monthly fee and you get a desk or you get access to their to their building where you can you can do work. And there's different levels of tiers that you can go on for each specific building. I know they have stuff called hot desks where you can just come in anytime you need to. It's open office. They have dedicated desks um, as well as private offices as well if you actually have a more permanent location. So how WeWork pulls this off is they actually, they typically lease spaces. So they would actually lease a building and then they subdivide that space out, add a little bit of design, a community with that free beer, and then you get WeWork. Their memberships range from $45 a month if you just want to do drop-ins, and then it costs $50 for each day that you're in there. And then I believe that their desk space, depending on the city, starts at about you know $400 to $500 a month for unlimited access, and you have that have that desk in your very own WeWork. Yeah, interesting. I, um, I wonder how it's played out with COVID, because to me, WeWork and co-working spaces feel like kind of an in-between between committing to a full-time office and actually working remotely from home. I think now with COVID proving out that some people can work from home, not that it's right for everybody. This is something that I can see people doing or trying, but because people are now working from home, why not just work from home unless they just want to get away? I mean, I do understand there's a lot of benefits from separating home and office life, especially if you're not in like a larger house where you can separate your own office. But, you know, in this case, like I wonder how they're doing, especially with COVID. I totally. um, listened to a, I was watching a YouTube video from this guy named Gary Tan. I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Tan, but no. he is um he was previously a part of Y Combinator and he was saying talking about the trends of remote work and what the new trends are going to be moving forward and he was basically saying with larger companies remote work can work. A lot of those people are they don't need that same level of efficiency. They're just trying to kind of get out of their own way in some ways and by working from home people can do that. And they said that the reason why they anticipate companies seeing uptick in productivity of people working from home is because there's nothing else to do. Like mm. before there was like, 
you go out for a Pilates class after work, or maybe there's happy hour. And when those things open back up, are you still going to be productive at home? So that's what they're kind of leaning towards. But they did say that for smaller companies, it's probably still going to be better for them to meet in person for the most part, because they need to get ahead of the competition. There's going to be a lot less friction there by working in person and getting access to your teammates and things like that. So it's interesting to see the different viewpoints of what's going to be how people are going to be working moving forward and where this co-working business model kind of fits into everything. Totally. And I think that no matter what happens, you know, it's January of 2021, whatever happens in the next six months, it's not going to be the same as it was in Mm -hmm. January 2020. That we know for sure. I actually think that co-working could see a massive uptick post-COVID now that the workforce can be distributed. Right. So I think that you can get some of the perks of, you know, working in a small group and have that super fast collaboration, but in like lower cost areas with your workforce by offering like co-working spaces where you, where you meet up X amount of days and maybe giving your employees one of the perks could be perhaps like a co-working space. Um, but yeah, it'll, it'll be super interesting to see how things shake out and how WeWork's going to escape 2020 and 2021 with COVID-19 ravaging. I like that you mentioned the perks thing. I was thinking about a lot of companies now, at least during the pandemic, are offering some benefit to maybe like give you a stipend for your internet or help you set up your home office. Whereas instead, they could be you know providing that towards a WeWork space um, if you don't want to work in your home office or you want to get away or maybe you're you're just in a one bedroom apartment, so there's no real place for you to get work done. Or a lot of people again like to separate work and home life. So I do think that that's you know, a viable strategy. And, you know, we'll see how that kind of shakes out as, as COVID-19 starts to hopefully leave the public space and, and be less prevalent. I want to touch on the history of the product. So, and I think there's a lot of interesting uh, Lots changes to unpack here. <laughs> yeah, throughout, and there's a lot of culture to unpack uh, behind WeWork. I think a lot of people or maybe some of the listeners here know of WeWork because there's a lot of controversy behind the company and happy to dive into that. But first, let's talk about how it got started. In 2008, Adam Newman, which is a name that you'll probably hear again a lot in the show, and Miguel McKelvey founded Greendesk, which is an eco-friendly co-working space in New York. Mike, that's right up your alley. Absolutely. Newman is an Israeli national, I believe, and grew up in a community called the Kibbutz, which is kind of like um like a co-living space, if you will, or a co-op space. So that theme obviously permeated through uh, onto WeWork, where they're creating this sense of community. In 2010, they sold Greendesk and started WeWork itself in the Soho district. And by 2014, it was a pretty big success. WeWork was the fastest growing leasee of new office spaces in New York. So they were buying up these spaces and turning them around to rent out to potential co-workers or people that just needed office space or whatever. And they, again, separated their office spaces by touting the sense of, quote, community, again, from this theme from the the Israeli kibbutz. Super interesting because I, I definitely agree. I was super close to... So I saw the Boston office get open, one of the Boston WeWorks open, and that was mm-hmm. a huge selling point for the office is yeah. from events that always happen at the you know community, uh, within the community rather, um, and also just the the general vibe of like all the staff there it was just, hey, like let's be friendly and let's uh, make everyone feel like you're part of something bigger. So it's super interesting that Newman really wanted to hammer that point down. Yeah, capture that point. I think <laughs> we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but it might have been to a fault, this sense of like community and like, I guess, almost like a fraternity or broship, uh, if you will. <laughs> For sure. You know, I've heard of other people that ended up using WeWork and maybe they're older and they felt like I just wanted to get in there and get my work done and 
people would kind of bother me and like just try to buddy buddy with me. And I was just looking for a space. So it maybe <laughs> wasn't right for them. By this time in 2014, uh, a lot of large investors had come knocking. So JP Morgan Chase, T. Rowe Price Associates, and even Goldman Sachs had invested into WeWork, realizing that you know, there was something there. People were interested in this co-working space. And, you know, there was a movement to individual contractors or workers or even small companies moving away from traditional brick and mortar offices to being distributed and spread out, or at least just having a, you know, temporary office for the time being. Uh, Fortune Magazine highlighted WeWork as a unicorn, which for people that don't know, unicorn usually means a billion dollar valuation. At the time, it had a $10 billion valuation. So I love that that's a term, you know, and yeah. just, just randomly thrown out in the right. tech world. It's like, oh, it's, it's a unicorn. You yeah. Know? I think uh, people usually say like 90 or 99% of startups fail. And so that's why the, the one unicorn is the one that not only succeeds as a company and, and stays afloat, but also becomes worth more than a billion dollars. They continued their expansion campaign. So they started to expand across the globe. I think, again, starting in New York, they started opening in Europe, obviously in Israel and started opening locations in Asia. By 2019, things had started to unravel a bit. Um, WeWork had filed for IPO in early 2019, but there were a couple weird things that happened prior to IPO. For example, Newman had pulled 700 million out of, I think in shares, had like sold 700 million in shares right before the WeWork IPO, which is usually a red flag for investors. For sure. <laughs> SEC is definitely looking into that one. You yeah, know? it's like a, it's not a nod of confidence in your own company that it's going to survive and you're just trying to cash out as soon as you can. So, you know, a lot of times those CEOs and those founders have to kind of hold on, even if they know they'll make a, a pretty big payday from that for one sure. IPO. It's wild to see too, because like when you file for your IPO, you have to list a lot, like the SEC has a very... Uh, strict paperwork so you mm -hmm. have to fill out and make it public so to your point just not a strong vote of confidence after you put all of your financials publicly then you're going to cash out 700 million i can see the flip side of you know you've been working so hard and you just want to like finally capture some of this wealth that you've created sure. but yeah. also that's like that's tough it's a tough sell yeah, as I'll get into a bit, um, I think Newman was already enjoying some of the uh, benefits of being uh, the founder and CEO of WeWork even prior to cashing out that $700 million. So analysts were generally concerned over how profitable the company might be. And they said they didn't expect that the valuation would reach beyond $20 billion because they kind of flubbed their IPO. They postponed their IPO to late 2019 instead, saying we're definitely going to IPO this year. But at the same time, they put up their private jet, a Gulfstream G650, on sale Again, the G650 was something that Newman had purchased for himself because he enjoyed flying private and felt like it was something that he was entitled to. And again, that's not a vote of confidence from uh, potential investors on how you're stewarding your money and um, how you're kind of treating your money. So for sure, I think like in 2019, a huge like lens into just corporate governance of how things are actually run and just how much power Adam Newman had was was actually super fascinating. And I think that I'm sure this will become like a business school case study to look at for for years to come, just looking at, you know, how, how things were organized and even just where the incentives lay and also who controlled the checks and balances within the company. Because I think the fact of the matter is that there, there weren't any and it was able to just kind of run run rampant the, this culture of just we're high growth startup and like we'll do like doing everything we can to grow and just create this community and really kind of neglecting a lot of the traditional checks and balances that are in place for uh, like a, a normal company not a normal company but i guess but a more more established company i think founders as an archetype uh, in general kind of they're, no they're not they're not all evil but they're i will say that they're all madmen in some ways like they're not you know you have to be a certain type of person to be a founder generally 
And unfortunately, there are is a subset of those founders that tend to just kind of go off the rails, mostly because they're uh, bull in China shops and they will tend to ask for forgiveness versus permission. And I think Newman was that way. And so there's definitely other things that I'm going to cover here about Newman and I guess the leadership at WeWork. But as people were looking into the IPO and looking into the company, a lot of really shady stuff in terms of leadership practices started to come out. For example, there is uh, what was called WeWork Summer Camp. And WeWork Summer Camp was essentially an offsite where they would get large people to come perform. I can't remember who they got specifically, but it was like A-list artists to come perform at the summer camps. It's just basically like a, a music festival. But also at the music festival, a lot of WeWork employees would engage in, they would have sex in tents. There would be like rampant drug use. There would be things of that nature. And it was pretty out in the open. And it was just kind of accepted that there's this bro culture at WeWork. And this just how we are. We're one big family and it's okay. I read something along the lines of that Adam Newman was obsessed with tequila. And so at every board meeting, at every big decision, they'd always have tequila on hand and they would just be pounding shots of tequila and they would make you do tequila shots as part of like this like ritual or culture, like, you know, when it came to <laughs> making decisions and things like that. Wow, that that's that's wild. I had I had not heard of that, but I um just hearing all the stories like of summer camp and all of that and, you know, th- things that I know uh, like of WeWork and, you know, some of my friends that have worked for WeWork that doesn't surprise me mm-hmm. one, one bit. It definitely feels like uh, for you know for those of our listeners that have seen the HBO TV show Silicon Valley, it feels very much like the uh, the actor that's the billionaire and he's like Trace, Trace Thomas, Thomas, yeah, exactly, and he creates the, the tequila and like he's just the quintessential tech bro of just all of these <laughs> emotions of do whatever was, we can to make money. Was it Rich Branneman or something? Something like that was yeah, his name. yep, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't stop there. I remember also reading something about they would fly internationally to have like a board meeting like they would literally get on their private jet fly to europe uh bring everybody there like last minute like you have two days to pack or whatever they would fly to this board meeting and i remember one of the executive assistants said that they would tell us like one time they said oh we don't want you to come like you don't need to pack then they called me in the middle of the night and told me to pack your things you're gonna get on the next plane and they flew them over so they'd fly you know red eye over to i don't know israel somewhere in europe and then they would go to the place, they would sit outside the boardroom and they would just be there in case they needed to run, you know, run messages or do stuff like that. And she said she sat outside the boardroom and did nothing for four hours and then they left. Like, that's how they would use their money. They would fly their EAs over uh, just on this like, you know, really expensive last minute flight, international flight come and they would just be there for nothing. Um, And it was really frivolous. And that's that's what I'm talking about with like the checks and balances of just like Mm -hmm. how you're spending your money in corporate governance. Like, Stuff like that shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be making like, I don't know, like, let's just like break down like what how much that would actually cost to fly someone out, you know, $6,000 maybe, you know? Put them like, up in a hotel. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like 6000 for the flight, you know, yeah, plus like yeah. the time and all of that. Like, right. Put them up in a hotel knowing that they're not going to spend for bottom dollar hotel. They'll probably spend for something really expensive and all for what? For you to maybe run one fax or, you know, like type up one message. Uh, when you could have just brought them in, you know, earlier or pre-planned. I think, yeah, it was an egregious misuse of funds. I think to like your point with like like the founder archetype of, and I think you have to be like the salesperson that is always selling your company and your brand and this idea. And it, you have to like live this like self-fulfilling prophecy because you're facing so many headwinds as a founder. So um, I definitely don't knock Adam for for that, but just 
Um, I think the people around him, like there should have been some sort of checks and balances, be it like from his investors uh, to just cut, like come, come down on that. You know, it's like, I think the simplest question is like, what's your path to profitability? I mean, if you're, I think at one point in 2019, when they went public with their information, they were losing like, they had like 1.8 billion in revenue, but they were still losing a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. um, a year. So it's just like, it's just crazy like that. And how can you be having these crazy parties and, you know, flying your EAs right. out for four hours when you're that much in the red and also flying yeah. a G6, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think something else, there's some more interesting, you know, factoids about Adam. Um, I read that in one of the business meetings, he would bring his father along and his father knew nothing about the business and he didn't speak English. And so he would just kind of sit, oh my sit in the board <laughs> meetings. And then I can't remember who, who said this, but they were like, I didn't know who this person was. And I found out later that it was Adam's father. Uh, he didn't really contribute to the conversation, but he was just there kind of nodding. So he just like, hey, dad, like come join me at work just because you can. Um, and he would kind of like walk him around and he'd be in like these really important business meetings and he wasn't needed and there was no reason for them to be there. But I think that um, he was giving family members roles within the company mm-hmm. as well. Adam's wife is actually a Paltrow. So um, she is cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow. And I recall that uh, I want to say her brother or somebody else like got some very vague position in the company where they didn't really do anything or add any direct value. But they were getting paid to be in the C-suite. So there's it's stuff wild. like that that's like, yep. you know, really egregious mishandling of power in terms of Adam being the CEO. And, you know, it kind of reflected poorly on the company once some of these things, uh, these exposés, if you will, started to come out. Yeah. And it was almost like this like perfect storm, like because one of the biggest investors in 2017, I believe, was was SoftBank. And they had this like I, I don't know the guy's name that that led SoftBank. Uh, we can put it in the show notes later, but he was kind of like Newman, but for this for this fund of money, the, the mm-hmm. SoftBank you know venture capital fund. And he, him, and Adam just like hit it off, and like he's like I have this pool of money, and Adam's like I have this great idea, this we work, like we're just gonna grow. And so like they, it was almost like this unchecked like, ton of money, <laughs> the right. pool of money that Adam was able to tap into mm-hmm. with SoftBank and. You know, SoftBank was almost in the situation where they had to double down and just like essentially go all in when, you know, after we were pulled out the IPO, I know like there was the back and forth of like, how are we going to recoup our money because the valuation is now tanked. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they were, they had such a big position that they were, they were stuck in it. Um, so I think it was just this beautiful, weird, perfect storm with SoftBank and WeWork just having this unchecked <laughs> way yeah. to spend billions and billions of dollars. Right. Yeah. You know, I think like there's certainly things that will chip away at the value of your company. One of it is for most tech companies, most startups is usually, are you profitable? I mean, you look at Uber, they weren't profitable. I don't know if they're still profitable now, actually, but um, they weren't profitable for a long time. But also, you know, the image of your company. So it's kind of a mixture of both. I think image you can overcome in some ways. Um, there's some things that you can do. And, and in this case, what they did was they revamped their business model and actually brought in somebody else, Sandeep Mathrani, to succeed Adam Newman as CEO. So that was kind of getting rid of the old guard, if you will, and replacing them with somebody who had some leadership experience and, and could you know be the face of the company and let people maybe set aside their fears of how um, the business was going to be treated. But then you still have the question of, is, is WeWork going to be profitable moving forward? But now uh, Sandeep is the, the CEO of WeWork and they've rebranded as the We Company. And so I think they're doing a couple other things outside of just co-working spaces. Sandeep actually came from, he was a director or some, some higher level C-suite person from 
uh, Brookfield Residential, which is a development company here in, I think here in the US, I don't know if he's in other countries, but they basically build a ton of houses. So like Lennar, Brookfield Residential, those are some of the Got big it. like American builders that, you know, when they, most neighborhoods that are built with these like cookie cutter houses, like they usually build like those, our house is a Brookfield house. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's where we're at with WeWork in, in 2020 and yeah, we'll see how things go in uh, 2021 and beyond. Totally. And I think Adam Newman got one of the biggest golden parachutes ever. I think it was something like $1.7 billion. And then, then just to get fired, just like, Hey, like you yeah, can't, right. like you can't run this anymore. Here's like, here's some money. Just go right. like pound sand. It was really sad because like, all these f- other folks were getting laid off at WeWork because they mm-hmm. were just yeah. needed to be profitable and they just needed to, to trim the the fat, uh, so to speak. So it's really sad to see like the leader getting so much money. I don't know if it was exactly 1.7 billion. We can, we can check that later. Um, but I know that he was also paid as a consultant to come um, I think it was like $46 million per year. It's just a, uh, he was on the books to, to just to be a consultant for, for WeWork. So, um, yeah, definitely a tumultuous times, like over the past 10 years, 11 years that WeWork was, was founded till now. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how WeWork escapes COVID-19 and just how they, you know, rebrand themselves after having Adam's growth. Cause, you know, to your point with, with WeWork of not being profitable, I think venture capitalists were, really just looking for growth. And that's something that WeWork did a great job at. Mm-hmm. And so just diving into who WeWork is for and who the customers were. And, and the current numbers might be a little bit skewed because of COVID-19. But in July of 2020, WeWork said that they had over 600,000 members generating $1.8 billion, uh, with a B in revenue. That's trace commas for you Silicon Valley fans. <laughs> but they weren't profitable. Um, but that's, that's a ton of growth. If you're able mm-hmm. to take nothing from no desks all the way up to 600,000 people are willing to spend $500 a, uh, a month on your company. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super interesting. I didn't think that's what the venture capitalists were, were looking for. But yeah, diving into who the customers are for. So you have to imagine that it could be a huge variety of customers. It could be your freelance entrepreneur. Maybe you're a photographer that just needs a desk with a dedicated setup that because you live in a studio apartment, you need a dedicated workspace that's not your home all the way up to you're a new big tech company, or sorry, you're an old established tech company trying to break into a new location like Philadelphia or Detroit per se. You could just spool up a quick, um, you know, buy a couple WeWork desks and you're you're up to speed without any of that mm-hmm. large yeah. fixed costs. Um, and or so, contracts or leases or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. So WeWork reports that roughly a third of its members that actually use this space are employers that have over 500 people. So I actually thought that it would be mostly, you know, the the one-off entrepreneurs or the small companies. So I was actually surprised to see that statistic. And the other statistic that I thought was really interesting is how much of the market segment that WeWork has able been able to capture. So if you look at the market segment as just, you know, commercial real estate. So like how many, like wh- how much total real estate is there out there for commercial uh, office space? And it's about 70 million square feet that are dedicated currently today in the U.S. to flexible office space. Hmm. And WeWork has about 11 million of that. Oh, wow. So about um, one seventh of the all the <laughs> if you're looking for a co-working space, like WeWork has um, you know, a seventh of it. So I, I thought that was um, pretty wild to yeah. wild to see. And so I don't have a good take for how WeWork's going to exit the pandemic, if it, they're going to be in a better spot or a worse spot. But it'll be really interesting. I think what you know gives me the most question is. The, just the whole business model of WeWork is the majority of WeWork's actual offices aren't owned. They're just leased from another company. So I have to imagine like once those leases wrap up, 
Like what happens? Like you, like what? Like let's say like a lease that you signed in like 2009 when things were good and it was a super long term lease, and then the developer wants to re up that to whatever number that they <laughs> that they mm-hmm. want to. Like let's say double it. How are your prices going to be affected? And that kind of gives me pause as if I'm looking at WeWork as a long term investment and even companies. So I'm curious if they're going to switch from leasing to buying, but buying has its own <laughs> yeah, own pitfalls troubles, as well right. with it. I think if I was leasing out to WeWork, like you mentioned, most of them are looking for long-term plays. For them, they're looking for, you know, when you purchase real estate, you're looking for pretty stable income. And you're pretty happy if somebody's like, hey, I'm going to sign a 10-year deal with you. And you know that you're not going to make as much money per day, but the income is pretty stable. You know, it's going to, the check is going to come from WeWork. And you know that while you could be getting a little bit more, there are going to be those months that you won't have tenants or you do have tenants, you know, you have to deal with the tenants individually. You're kind of just offloading all of that to another company and letting them deal with it. Yeah, they make a little bit more money than you and you kind of split the difference. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's not a pretty bad gig for for passive income if you are the office owner themselves. But speaking of which, let's talk about the office owners themselves and some other competitors of WeWork. I think there's not too many and mostly because WeWork isn't, they tout themselves as a tech company, but they're kind of like a real estate company. Most of the competitors in this space, I would say, are one, regular office space leasers. So if you drive down the street at your local industrial boulevard, you'll probably see like just office space for rent. The problem there is obviously that they usually rent it on some contract and on some actual lease, whereas WeWork is more like pop-in, pop-out subscription model. And so that's where it's a little bit different. The second thing is like an incubator. So Mm-hmm. Um, anywhere from like somebody's house as an incubator, which that that's like Silicon Valley. That's what some people do to an actual dedicated space as an incubator or even like a program like Y Combinator. Those are other ways that you could get your work done, especially if you're working for a tech company or not. And then I think the third one's probably just a home office, right? You know, there's no reason for people if they have the space to not just build their home office. Maybe they like to separate their home life and their work life. And that's why they want to use WeWork. But in general, it's probably going to be cheaper and last you a longer time if you build the home office the way you like it, unless you like the community. I think that's the only thing that I would say is a little bit of a differentiator is where people at WeWork, you could be running into the same people every day at quote unquote work, even though they don't work for the same company as yours. Totally. Um, So I think those are all the competitors that I can think of, I guess, other than that, just like any other space, like coffee shops or or stuff like that, (laughs) where you just kind of pop in and you don't really have to pay for uh, like local libraries, like you don't have to pay for any space. You just have to like show up early in the morning and like you know, <laughs> scout out your table or whatever. Government funded uh, co-working space. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think like the, the only other one that I can think of is uh, is Regis, R-E-G-U-S. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they're they're big in the UK. I only know of them because uh, I did a you know three month contract in London and that was mm-hmm. the company that that we used. And they actually happen to have a bunch of um, real estate across like the um, across the world. But I think, yeah, the huge differentiator that you hit the nail on the head is just the community where it's like, if you go into a Regis space, it's like office space. It's like yeah. the cubicles and just like, you're there to work. Like that's right. what you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, but WeWork's just like, I don't know, people want flannel and like beers on tap and someone's Casual playing ping dress, pong. You're like, yeah. what's happening? And like, I, I have to work here. So um, I think that's kind of to our early point of like, what's the difference between an established company like Regis uh, versus WeWork? Is it just free coffee and beer? It's this nebulous term called community. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) So what do you think about it? What do you think about um, WeWork and how would you rate it? Yeah, so I actually think it's a great product market fit. I mean, 
especially after 2008, like it was a perfect marriage of all these, like 2008, the, the financial uh, crisis. After that hit, there was all this unused commercial real estate and all these folks, entrepreneurs that needed to just get their feet off the ground and needed a space to work. So it was a great way to just connect the dots <laughs> between the mm-hmm. two. So I, I think it's super strong and I think it will continue to be strong. If people that don't want to spend a ton of money and move out to the suburbs in this random, like weird office space for a 10 year lease, they don't know how long their co- company's going to get off the ground or, and keep moving. So I think it's a mm-hmm. great fit for entrepreneurs. I don't have a good take on the pricing. Um, you know, $500 a month definitely seems kind of steep. I could see that adding the value if you're in the city and you have to like make a lot of deals, like when you're first getting off and you need a space to bring them into, I can definitely see that as a pro. Um, even though like the, my grad school that I went to, we actually have a, a co-working space in New York city. So I know like for students that were like networking in New York city, they could actually come to the WeWork space to mm-hmm. just take a, take a deep breath and, and get caught up. I think the customer experience is great. If you've ever been to a WeWork, it always feels kind of cool and hip. I might just be the target segment though, of folks that, <laughs> folks that like that, um, Definitely always enjoyed their their events that they put on, especially when I was in Boston in 2012 to 2016, just like seeing the cool events and community that they built uh, together, not to use the the C word, you know, the community word um, <laughs> frivolously there. But if I had to give it a number, I think it's uh, it's got to be like a, a four star out of five star um, from, a, from a customer, like four out of five stars. Mm-hmm. I think the business model is like one and a half out of five. I think yeah. that's definitely <laughs> lacking. But if I'm just putting my customer hat on, I'm like, it's actually a really cool product. You know, you can just show up and and work in a co-working space. So yeah, I'd say four out of five for customer side and one and a half if I'm an investor. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, it's I think it's going to be a bit lower. I think mostly because I would rather spend that money or that time building out my home office. And that's the case with our house. I, the recent house that we purchased was, uh, I we tried to make sure that there was a space for us to build an office because we knew we'd be spending some time here and wanted to make it fit for us. But I guess I can see where people are, maybe if you're younger or you're new to a city, you're more interested in, I guess, co-working or co-collaborating or building the sense of community with people that maybe you don't know. So it does fit like a specific niche type of person, I think. And it just doesn't happen to be me. So I think that's a little hard for me to swallow, especially at that price point. Like if you're spending 500 bucks a month um, or whatever the pricing model is, I feel like you could just slowly add towards your office and eventually you don't need to <laughs> really need to spend any more money except for you know internet and power. I guess like the free beer and the coffee is nice. And the only difference is I don't have people in my office right now. (laughs) With random interruptions. Yeah, exactly. With random interruptions. So, you know, otherwise, I think that it's a decent idea. I I do think that it's really interesting to be able to provide a physical space. I don't think that everyone's going to be working remote even after COVID. I think there will be some people even doing mixed or working in these local co-working spaces. I don't think WeWork is the only solution, though. Like, I question whether or not you could... Uh, like I know there's some local libraries that are pretty nice and have like rooms that you can rent and you can just go work there. And if you're really strapped for cash, you would do that. And if you weren't strapped for cash and you're a bigger company, then, you know, why not just buy an office at that point? So I'm I'm kind of like curious, where do you set the boundaries and how many people actually fit into that, that pool of potential users? I'm not quite convinced there. Um, but overall, I think it's a neat idea. I do think it allows a lot of people to get a cool office working space and uh, without having to do that full long-term commitment or have the size that you know a big company can kind of push around, I'll give it a three. I love it. I think that's a, a ringing endorsement from from Jeff is that's a neat idea. I think that, <laughs> that'll be the tagline for today's episode. 
Well, those are our thoughts on WeWork. And, you know, we'd love to hear from you, our audience. So feel free to share what you think with us on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. You can find us at ProdX Podcast. That's P-R-O-D-E-X Podcast. Yeah. And if you like the show, be sure to like us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, etc. And let us know what products we should review next. See you next episode. <laughs>